Hi, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. You want to know our Big Self formula? Here it is. Big ideas plus true self equals big self. What do we mean by that? Being a leader, being really good at anything, but especially in your professional life, means being in complete command of yourself. Start with you, yourself. That's where the self part of big self comes in. It all starts with self-awareness, your ability to handle stress, understand your blind spots, be less reactive. But we also want to go somewhere from there. What do you do with all that inner knowledge? We want you to play big in your life. And that means good boundaries, having confidence, purpose, and clear direction. We focus on helping you make breakthroughs with all that self-knowledge and purpose. I am an educational psychologist, a licensed therapist, angel investor, TEDx speaker, and leadership coach. And I am an author, publisher, a doctor of creativity and writing, and an Enneagram certified practitioner. And it is our mission to bring you the most relevant and transformational resources we can find. And we give you practical, specific takeaways on topics that everyone might be talking about. But few are diving into in quite the same way. Personality Hacker is an organization designed to help people leverage their own mental processes to optimize whatever can be optimized, productivity, communication, job satisfaction, and most importantly, your overall happiness. When we get these needs met, we stop being so myopic through the lens of our own experience and start seeing a bigger picture. If you know your type, you can find the right people to emulate along with methods that focus on your natural strengths. And if you don't, looking through the lens of Myers-Briggs and Jungian psychology is the first entry point, but the trail certainly doesn't end there. We at Big Self and also our friends at Personality Hacker also love the Enneagram and systems thinking, and we use other maps and models to guide our path toward making a real impact in your life. And today's episode gives you some high-level overview of the Myers-Briggs as a system, and we also nerd out a little. In the end, however, we think you'll learn something about how this all works and the powerful potential value it holds when you use it as a tool for growth. The entry point isn't the important thing. It's how you apply it to become the best version of you. And be sure to turn, tune in, listen to the end when we give you the big self takeaway. So we are honored to have Joel and Antonia on from Personality Hacker. Guys, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Awesome to be here, guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you. We've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. I will tell you all, I think I discovered your work way back when you first started it. I was a director of happiness at a venture capital firm if you can believe that. And someone sent me your link. Um, and I, I don't know if the time it was at a blog at the very beginning and I fell yeah. in love with what you all are doing. So I've been a fan for a long time. Yeah. Well, they've been around for a decade in the podcast since at least their own podcast since 2014, if yeah. I'm not 
mistaken. So yeah, it's really good to have you guys on. Uh, well, let's like get right down to it about this Myers Briggs. You know, this the Myers Briggs, as I understand, I, I think of my history. I think it was invented in like the forties or so, and has has been a fun to me. It was kind of a fun typing mechanism. I mean, even in high school, for me, I took it. I took it in college. I took it several times in graduate school, um, and mostly generally came up the same. But you know, it was kind of like for me, it was like a fun conversation piece. But um, you all seem to have identified uh, at a pretty a pretty important stage that like this can be. I, th- I feel like it's an innovation the way that you have decided that this can be used as a personal growth tool. So could you like tell us a little bit about how you identified that um, in terms of making it a strong personal growth direction? Uh, well, I think it's a combination. I mean, it's just the center of the Venn diagram of my personal interests, right? Uh, I first discovered Myers-Briggs when I was 14. And it already, like in the very beginning, um, had a lot of... It was really helpful to me because it helped me give myself permission to be me. And it helped me understand how other people were showing up. And so it already became a socially um, helpful tool from the very beginning. The the way that we approach Myers Briggs, though, is not it's not this it's not your mom's Myers Briggs. Basically, mm-hmm. it's not the decades long business application that it's traditionally been thought of. And the reason why it's always been in that world is the um, the the etymology of the Myers Briggs type indicator, which is what people are usually referring to when they say like MBTI and it stands for Myers-Briggs um, type indicator. It has its history in helping women find their talents or their skills to do job placement during world war two. That was its original intent. And so because mm. its original intent was effectively a business tool, then it makes sense that for decades upon decades, it was always considered a business application And a lot of people did feel it was just fun, right? They're going to find out their type and it's going to give them a little bit of a write-up and people may or may not use it ethically in business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think um, over time and and what's great and all props to like the Myers-Briggs Institute and people who are associated, they always wanted it to be used very ethically. But, you know, tools get co-opted and and so uh, it it's just lived in that world. And most of the time, if there's been any, um, you know, any challenges with it, it's usually because it's like an oversimplified tool with oversimplified descriptions that people are using in business. And that's Mm -hmm. oftentimes how people see it. Yeah. But the, uh, the point of origin is actually before, um, Isabel and Catherine, right. The mother daughter team that created Myers Briggs, it actually sources back to Carl Jung and, um, Catherine Briggs, sort of obsession with Carl Jung's work at the time. He wrote a book called Psychological Types, and within it was a chapter, chapter 10. It's a very famous chapter in all of his works where he described eight mental processes that he called cognitive functions, which were ways that the mind was wired to take in information and to evaluate information or make decisions. And what ended up happening with Myers-Briggs is that they created almost like a decoder ring to try to figure out what a person's cognitive function, what we call now cognitive function stack or the sequence of order of importance that all of us use these eight mental processes. And so because the decoder ring was so accessible, 
and was pared down into eight preferences or what we call dichotomies, introversion, extroversion, sensing intuition, thinking, feeling, and judging and perceiving, because those were so easy, simple, and accessible, that ended up becoming the entire show for a really long time. That's what most people know when they think of Myers-Briggs. They think of those four dichotomies. And uh, one of my favorite thinkers of all time, Robert Anton Wilson, said that the best models are useful at their most simple level, but can be expanded upon indefinitely. Mm. And I would argue that Myers-Briggs is a very useful model. It's something that even when you pare it down to its bare necessities, it still has uh, insight to it. It has something that can be applied. And because that's a super accessible place and because the business world is is a fast-paced place that's looking for all the leverage points, trying to be as efficient as possible, then that ended up becoming what people know of it. But underneath the surface still lives Carl Jung's incredible work on cognitive functions. So, uh, and, and of course, Carl Jung himself was, I mean, you, I'm not sure if the word personal growth is the best word to describe it, but he was into psycho-spiritual healing and he created a lot of psycho-spiritual tools. And so underneath all of this, uh, you know, sort of uh, simplest access point, it lives the beating heart of a psycho-spiritual tool. Hmm. And that's what those cognitive functions are. They're not easy to get to. You have to do some digging. Uh, You have to mine it out. And what's great about the internet right now in the last 20 years is that the sort of hidden beauty of that system is now something that a lot of people talk about. Cognitive functions, which nobody used to know unless you were like super into it. In fact, if you went and got MBTI certified, you might not have ever heard the phrase cognitive functions because they didn't really teach them uh, originally. But now... Uh, through information sharing and, um, you know, just people wanting to know more and, and digging deeper. Now cognitive functions are all over the place. And, um, and so it, it's, a, it's, it's really the place that a person needs to dive into if they're going to use it for a personal growth application. But once you get to that place, the personal growth applications become myriad they become, they're, they're all over the place. Um, and, uh, and that includes just, again, simply dipping your toe into that whole concept. You'll get a lot of, a lot of, uh, of meat, a lot of steak in just this, just the most shallow perusal of cognitive functions. But if you go super deep, we believe that it can actually become a psycho spiritual tool. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. Let me ask this because we're all familiar with the Enneagram and our audience is pretty familiar with the Enneagram as well. And how we talk about it as the the map uh, for personal growth, for psycho-spiritual development. And I agree completely with what you're saying. Um, and I've seen that played out uh, you know, a lot in the Enneagram community, that it, it is reduced to a typing tool. And of course, there's so much more to it. So if you could give an example or maybe talk through some um, a client or someone that you've coached with to use Myers-Briggs as that psycho-spiritual tool, um, we might be getting a little bit into the car model, which I want you all to talk about as well. Uh, but I'm really curious, how how do you use it as a psycho-spiritual tool, especially you know likening it to the way that we, we use the Enneagram as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Carl Jung had this concept of one-sidedness. 
And you spoke about the Enneagram and the people that we work with in the Enneagram, Dr. Beatrice Chestnut, Aranio Pius, <clears throat> excuse me, are, are amazing Enneagram teachers. And one of the things that Aranio and Beatrice will often say is personality is who you are not. And there's a sense of the way we identify with our persona or our personality often is our, our front-facing nature to the world, right? And so uh, we tend to, in, in the Myers-Briggs world, what ends up happening is there's a lot of one-sidedness created in our personalities. So let's say that I can use myself as an example. I'm an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs system, and I tend to be very extroverted, very creative. And there's a part of me that's always in kind of an extroverted attitude of my life, and I move through the world thinking up new ideas and then based on my personality, and we can get into the details of this, but I execute on those quickly, right? I want to get into action quickly. And sometimes that requires me to ignore parts of myself, the true authentic expressions of myself or the core values that I have. And I just kind of glob onto other people's values or I look at what's expedient in the moment to do. And what looking at my personality and the way that we, we approach it is I can look at the more introverted parts of myself, for example spend time getting to know those parts of my heart, what's important to me, the core values of my life. And now I'm not as one-sided in my life. I'm not just uh, creating ideas, implementing them immediately. I'm beginning to think in terms of, okay, what are the ideas that are important to me to execute on? Not just what I've heard from my religious background, my family, my culture, but what are the core values that are important to me? Now, again, this is specific to my personality. Other people are wired a little differently. They might approach us differently. But for me and my personality, it comes down to what is resonant with me at a core value, what really matters. And it means that I have to change some of the strategies in my life. I have to slow down. I have to spend more time getting to know, you know, my, my sense of what motivates me, what I actually care about, which requires me not to be in such fast action, which is hard to do because I want to be moving a lot. And I want to be doing things quickly. I want to generalize ideas and all the strategies I've built my whole life I have to start to think, well, I can't always just rely on those strategies. I have to think of new ways of becoming. And this starts to round us out as people and begin to move away from that one-sidedness toward a more balanced sense of self. And so at a really high conceptual level, that's really what we speak to is are finding the places in us as people that can help us not be one-sided, that can help us drop the persona masks we bring to the world and be our true selves when we show up a true whole self with joy in our lives. And that's, that's kind of what we're moving people toward and helping them find access to in their personalities. Yeah, there's, uh, when, when you look at that, those original cognitive functions, the mental wiring of every person, uh, there's actually a, a map, just like you talked about with the Enneagram, there's a, a point of origin and a map or a sequence of clear actions or inactions that a person needs to take that starts to reveal itself as you observe that, that sequence. Um, and there's a lot of challenges that are also woven into our personality types, as Joel mentioned, that Jung's concept of one-sidedness. Just like with the Enneagram, these are our strategies for moving through life. Like These are the, these are the things that kept us safe. Um, they're the things that made us believe that we could handle the, ch- the, the problems and the challenges that were thrown at us. And our personality types uh, in Myers-Briggs that talk about those cognitive functions do a very similar thing. They, they explain how our mind is, 
intrinsically wired to handle some of those challenges and problems, our go-to tools, the, the, the things that we're just going to naturally grab and hone and spend a lot of time developing. And just like with the Enneagram, sometimes it works out really well for us and we get rewarded for being in personality or being one-sided. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that when we run into a situation where we can't solve the problem with those tools, um, then we we hit a wall. We get massively fatigued. We don't understand why our normal strategies that have always worked for us are suddenly not showing up. And uh, when you don't have some of these maps, when you don't have a, you know topography of your personality to kind of figure out, well, these are my deeply entrenched behaviors. These are the things I'm doing without thinking. It's very unconscious. It, both Enneagram and Myers-Briggs help make the unconscious conscious. And now, now you go, okay, so if I'm going to go about this thing, uh, how is my mind wired to, first of all, fight me to do what I need to do? And how is my mind wired to, uh, to, to put it on rails, to actually do the thing I need to do, but in a way that's more conducive to me? And as Joel mentioned, Young's original work in that same book, Psychological Types, he talks about four archetypes of, of our minds, which are the persona or the masks that we wear, which, you know, to some extent can be very good, uh, you know, sort of uh, introductions to who we are to other people, right? They're the part of us that we share with the outside world. Then there's the ego, the part that we identify with, the part of us that goes, I'm a good person, right? That's what the ego's job is, is to constantly reinforce that we're good people. So when we do terrible things, we can justify it. No, it's okay. I'm still a good person. <laughs> then, there's the, then there's the shadow, which is the part of us that did the terrible thing that we don't want to look at and, is, mm-hmm. and we feel is all bad news. And then encapsulating all of it is the self, right? The self includes the persona the ego, the shadow, and a bunch of other content, right? A bunch of other stuff that can't be pared down to those other three archetypes. So is this what we mean when we, when we talk about like, find your, find yourself or become your true self? uh, I I think that that's, uh, I think that that's for a person who is an honest seeker of the self, that's the direction they end up going. I think most of the time when people are saying, find your true self, they're saying, let go of the persona, the definition that other people have of you and, and get in touch with your ego. Like you're not your role. Mm-hmm. Like you're not the professor. You're not the, the student. You're not the mom. You're not the, you know, whatever, right. fill in the blank. The personas. The role. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so what's nice about Enneagram and cognitive functions is that, um, or uh, Jungian functions, which has now loosely been called Myers-Briggs, what's great about them is that they help us get in touch with minimum the ego. So we can stop doing that thing that they call role person merger, which is over identifying with your persona or your mask or your role in life. And uh, then there's a, there's an avenue with functions and, and some brilliant Jungian psychologists that are also into Myers-Briggs and cognitive functions like Dr. John Beebe have given us access points to also get in touch with the shadow, right? These young, these cognitive functions can also help us understand how our shadow is going to work and the tools it's going to grab. And minimum, regardless of whether or not it's like a completely accurate diagnostic of what's going on, at minimum, it's introducing this idea of get in touch with the shadow, right? Mm. That there's more there. There's more content to look at. And all of that allows us to then see a much bigger picture that is the, the self, as Joel mentioned, that wholeness with joy or that, that, that complete picture. And, all, uh, and, and so, you know, that whole concept of my fingers, not the moon, like these, we have a tendency, especially when we first learn um, typologies, to overattach to those descriptions or overattach to 
the ways that we've been described. And that's right. okay for a time, right? For the, the initial intro to all of that, that's okay, right? You can't overattach and go, oh my gosh, this is me, and give yourself permission to be yourself. But if either of these tools are being used well, eventually a person has to come to the conclusion, oh, I need to actually transcend this. I need to be something more and bigger. And this helps describe the ways I've been stuck and sort of calcified in these definitions and there's more available. And, um, and I think both systems do a great job of like doing that handoff if a person wants. But, but let's get away from all that because most people aren't approaching it that much depth. Right. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's like the, that's the deep stuff. I think most people are coming to the system, especially Myers-Briggs to say, man, how can this improve my relationships? How can this improve my career trajectory? How can I use this for achievement in my life or better, better interfacing with other people. And I think that first, you know, persona drop can be, I'm not my role. I have a, I have mental wiring that makes up who I am. This is how I learn information. This is how I make decisions. And all of us have to do both of those things. We all have to be able to, to learn and take in new information. We all have to be able to decide upon that information we take in. We also have to have the ability to get in touch with our inner space and we also have to get in touch with the outer world and get outer world feedback because if we don't have all these four things in place, we're going to be lopsided or one-sided. So what these mental processes do, there's, there's four learning processes. We call these perceiving processes. They're the things that take in information. And there's four what are called judging thought processes, mental processes. And these are the ways we decide upon the information we take in. And all of us, everybody, no matter what your personality type is, those four letters point to the two primary ways that you're interfacing the world, the primary way you take in information and you learn new things, and the primary way that you make decisions or decide upon that information. And when you know that about yourself, that's really exciting because that opens up a whole new world to you, moving through your career, moving through relationships with friends or even lovers or partners. Like it's, it's a really powerful tool because it gets away from the persona of the role, I'm the teacher, professor, all that to get to the wiring of yourself, to say, oh, this is how I think about things. This is how I approach the world. Oh, and those people over there, that's how they think about it. That's how they approach it. Well, no wonder we have the conflict or no wonder we get along so well or no wonder I want that thing in my life. So I think that's really where a lot of people come to the system and start to understand how this can be powerful for them. Yeah. So I want to I wanna ask a, an application question. So yeah. we get asked to come into organizations um, I would say most of the 90% of the time to help with reactivity and breakdown of trust on teams. And so that is kind of the, um, our bread and butter. So I'm thinking about clients or folks that I know that are in this kind of heightened sense of reactivity. Um, let's just use me. I, Joel, I'm an ENFP as well. Uh oh. So, Uh um, Talk me through some strategies that, (laughs) (laughs) well, I'm like if applying this in kind of a real world, you know, someone's beginning to, they've typed themselves, they've kind of lived in that space for, for a minute, they're understanding their personas and their roles that they come at these conversations with, um, they're still reacting in a way that is unhelpful how would we use some strategies around these the typing to help them grow? And, and I, to me, I think about it like flexibility, like not being so rigid in this duality, but really working flexibly to kind of um, kind of move between 
different um, functions. And so talk me through that a little bit, like what that would actually look like for someone who wants to grow with it. All right. So let's use you as an example. So as an ENFP, that, that means that there are certain cognitive functions that you are naturally wired to approach the world using. Um, for an ENFP, the, the, the number one most favorite mental tool that you're going to bring to the world is something that's technically called ex- extroverted intuition. Um, and we, we nickname it exploration. It's a function that requires a lot of novelty in order to problem solve. And it needs a varied amount of experiences to very quickly pattern recognize what's what's really going on here. Uh, it very naturally takes um, a 30,000 foot view. It likes to cross pollinate all sorts of, uh, you know, different skills and, and observations and, uh, and basically anything that it's collected over time. When it has enough information or when, it, when it's able to sate its appetite for novelty and new experiences, uh, then it becomes a really amazing problem solver. But it's fast acting. It's very quick. And, uh, and it moves through the world in a way that usually impresses other people with its quickness, right? It's seeing things that other people miss uh, because not because it's observing details, but rather it's seeing the connections between things that other people miss. And it's supplemented by another function called introverted feeling or what we call authenticity. So these two functions together create a powerhouse of being able to understand. So introverted feeling or authenticity, just as a quick breakdown, is the ability to deeply introspect and ask what's important to me. Who am I as a person? That's me. Yeah, exactly. This would be right. You as, as an, an INFP. INFP. Yeah. yeah. This would be your dominant, right? Basically, the two of you have the same two functions that you're relying on, but in reverse order. As an ENFP, you're going to focus more on that extroverted intuition or exploration. Um, and for the INFP, they would be focusing more on what I'm about to describe, which is introverted feeling or authenticity. Uh, and so this function also gets in touch with intentions and motivations. Uh, it, it understands that people have a dark part of who they are. Uh, and it really, um, it really taps into what it means to be a human, what it means to have a human experience and what, and who I am in all of that. What's not just my identity, but like what's, what's at the core, what's at the marrow of the bones of who I am. And when you combine these two things, right, in either direction, what you get is somebody who is pretty good at understanding why people are doing what they're doing uh, and connecting people to their potential, right? Because that novelty-seeking part really understands, it's, it's very optimistic. It understands the possibilities. If we combine these things, what are, what's possible? Uh, and that with an understanding of the human condition or what it means to be a, a person really helps an individual understand a fundamentally human potential at a very deep core level. The challenge is that as an ENFP, you are going to be uh, wired to have a bias for extroversion. And that's your, uh, what's technically called your attitude, the attitude of extroversion. And there's another function that you also have accessible very quick, which is the opposite of introverted feeling. It's called extroverted thinking. It's effectiveness. And the, and as Joel mentioned, we need, we need four things. We need a way to get in touch with who we are, and we need a way to get outer world feedback. Basically, we need an introverted part of us and an extroverted part. And we need a way to take in new information and a way to make decisions. Well, that favorite function of yours, it's called the dominant, we call it a driver in our Carl model, uh, it, 
it's your information gathering piece. It's how you figure things out. It's how you solve problems and how you see the world. But you need a way to determine the value of the information you're taking in. This pattern I've seen, do I act on it? What do I do about it? I see all this possibility and potential. So uh, if there's like a million things I could be doing, what's the thing I should be doing? Well, because you have a bias towards extroversion, you have these two uh, decision-making tools available to you, authenticity and effectiveness. Authenticity requires you to pause, to stop, to go inside, to be quiet for a time, to really ask yourself what's important to you and what's meaningful. If you have all these different potentials or possibilities, your introverted feeling or authenticity part is going to tell you to do the thing that means something to you as an individual. But since you have a bias towards extroversion, you're far more likely to move quickly and grab the tool of effectiveness, which is extroverted thinking, right? That's actually what works in the outside world. What gets the job done? How quickly can I make this system work? Um, What are all the things I need to do to get my goals uh, accomplished? And as an ENFP, if you allow the bias towards extroversion to to inform your decision-making too much, It means you'll get a lot of stuff done and you'll be moving very quickly and you might see the possibilities and potential and everything, but you'll be overrun. You might spin your wheels a lot. Uh, You might throw too much spaghetti against the wall and eventually you lose yourself. Hey, that (laughs) Shelly, that resembles Shelly. You do I don't know too. what you're talking about. Yeah, right. You. Okay. <laughs> uh, a really good uh, breakdown of personality type. The person should feel massively called out, right? And so... Uh, <laughs> she resembles so, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I will. I just want to add, too, as you're saying all these things, as an INFP, I am speaking the same language as the ENFPs, except for I'm really attracted to that extroverted thinking. And I have, uh, I, you know, I've just in my history, I've had a lot of friends who are ENFPs. Well, and, uh, and one of the reasons why, and just to, just to complete that thought about being an ENFP. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a great tool because based on your cognitive functions, I, I don't even have to know your name. I don't have to know anything about you. I just have to say the leverage point for you is to get into your introverted feeling or authenticity mm. is to slow down, know what's meaningful and take right action. Not just any action, not just the thing that'll get it done, not just grab the next opportunity, but figure out what's important to you in that through line. And you'll feel a lot more satisfaction in life. You'll feel a lot more like you're on purpose and there's something, there's meaning for you. Mm. For an INFP, you lead with that introverted feeling authenticity part. That's not a problem for you. You know exactly what's important to you and what's not. Like, and if you don't know, yeah. all you have to do is take 10 steps and then suddenly you'll know, right? So, uh, so for you, that's, that's, a, that's something that's um, a far more of a strength, but you'll have a bias towards introversion. So that, that dominant or driver function for you is decision-making, right? It decides what's important and valuable to you. But you have two information-gathering functions available to you. You have extroverted intuition or exploration. And by the way, if I'm getting way too deep into all this stuff, just stop me. (laughs) This is wonderful. And I think before, you know, we could also just clarify it in a moment with talking about your, your car model. Uh, in a minute. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep keep going though, Antonia. This okay. is fascinating, and I, I'm, is. I'm seeing a lot of complementarity too with arrow work on the enneagram because I'm mm-hmm. sitting here thinking of my four arrow is exactly what you're talking about for me. Right. Uh, when we've done, we call them mashup coaching with uh, Beatrice and Aranio, we found that the recommendations for growth are almost exactly the same in both systems, regardless mm. of the person's type combination. Mm. Um, wow. And, yeah. So, um, so basically, uh, for um, 
to, to make it a little simpler, I'll say this. Imagine your mind is a four-passenger vehicle, and you've got a driver. Next to the driver, you have a co-pilot. Sitting behind the co-pilot is a 10-year-old, and sitting behind the driver is a 3-year-old. What I just described for you, Shelly, as an ENFP, is your driver and your co-pilot and your 10-year-old. So that effectiveness is your 10-year-old function. It's a function that's going to support that driver because they're in the same attitude of extroversion. But it's a childlike part of who you are, and it's not as great as making decisions, which is why you need to get into the co-pilot, the navigator, introverted part of who you are. For an INFP on the other side, is um, uh, your driver is introverted feeling or authenticity, and your co-pilot is Shelley's driver of extroverted intuition or exploration, meaning that you also are wired towards novelty and pattern recognition and needing new experiences. But because you're an introvert, you're biased towards introversion. So your 10-year-old or the opposite of that co-pilot is a function called introverted sensing or memory. It's very past referencing. And when it sits at a 10-year-old level, it's comfort seeking. So your leverage point mm. is to go do new things, things that scare the shit out of you, right? Like mm. to go do things that are outside your comfort zone and, um, and give you far more uh, information about how patterns are working in the outside world. What is actually going on out there? Because if you stay too introverted, you'll, uh, you'll only reference how you're feeling and how you felt in the past. It will discourage you from being courageous. It'll discourage you from seeing the possibilities of the world. And you won't get much done. You'll know how you feel about everything, but you will not be effective. You won't be able to create anything in your world. And so you'll find yourself just sort of, uh, a lot of times, just comfort-seeking, comfort-seeking, and cycling down. And you'll also lose meaning and purpose because you'll feel on some level like you're always wasting your talents. Well, yeah. I mean, it's that, that, I, that resembles me. Uh-huh. I, I was, you know, I've definitely gotten into the melancholic poet like side of things. Um, yeah. and I, and you know, I hate that it would culture also, it, you know, inform some of this stuff. And I'm like, I sort of like hate the introversion part. I want to be more extroverted in a lot of these things. Well, and that's the great thing about understanding how you're wired, because um, there's a lot of pictures that come up in people's heads when they say, I'd like to be more extroverted. And oftentimes that appears to be a social piece, right? Like if I want to be more extroverted, I need to go out and hang out with friends more. I need to go to parties. I need to network. I need to go socialize. But for you as an INFP, your extroverted function is it doesn't have to be social at all. It's extroverted intuition. It's making patterns about how things work in the outside world, uh, that could be uh, travel, right? You could go do world travel and pick up a bunch of patterns. Of course, you're going to run into people, but just, you know, like hitting the streets of Cairo and seeing how a developing country really looks, right? As opposed to just thinking about what you know, the reference points in your mind mm-hmm. or eating food or, uh, you know, in, in different places. But it could also be a really good brainstorming session, Extroverted intuition or exploration loves to brainstorm. So you might be around other people, but you're not socializing or doing small talk. You're brainstorming with them. You're getting creative ideas. That puts you in an extroverted place that is uh, is good for you. It's nourishing to your soul. So when you go, ah, oh, yeah, I wish I was more extroverted. Well, what's great is that this, this diagram tells you what kind of extroversion will not overtax you, that mm, will yeah. will actually nourish you. And so you can tap into that part of yourself, not be so one-sided and still be in all your strengths. And, and, and I think that that's what's so great about it is like for us as extroverts, we need to go introverted. Well, my, as an ENTP, 
which is slightly different than ENFP, my introverted work is different than your introverted work. Mm-hmm. And if I try to do your introverted work, I'll be just, I'll be frustrated. I won't know, I, I won't come to any real conclusions about anything. It'll just feel hollow to me. I need to use a function called introverted thinking or accuracy, which is more about how my, how, what, what are my beliefs? What do I think about things? What's logical and reasonable? So if you and I are doing the exact same introverted work, depending upon which kind of introverted work we're doing, it might be highly leveraged for you, but it will do nothing for me. What this does is it creates a map, sort of a, um, a, a reference point for all of the ways in which when we get into these different worlds, we're doing the right work for us. And we see growth from it. We see all these potentials. We see all of these bad habits and patterns we've gotten into. And then we have leverage points of action to take in order to get ourselves out of those pits, mm-hmm. out of those problems I- and challenges. Yeah, I want to stick with the car model here because I'm I'm curious about those two backseat folks, <laughs> the ten yeah. year old and the three year old. Um, <laughs> is the goal integration? Is the goal um, really tapping back into kind of that? Um, I don't know the right word. Persona is not the right word, but that um, part part of our personality and integration is that what we want to do with this, the, the younger parts of ourselves? Mm, that's a, that's a great question. So, uh, so we talked a little bit about the 10 year olds, which is actually, uh, it should be supportive to the rest of the car. It's a great part of who we are. That 10 year old function is it's a part that we highly identify with okay. and, and it shouldn't be controlling anything. Like it's like a family. Have you ever seen a family whose kids rule everything? Right. Oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and everybody's miserable and unhappy and they have to call like, you know, one of the nannies on super TV. nanny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to, to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the 10 year old part. The 10 year old part is a, a mm-hmm. is a part of ourselves that we really identify with, but we really need to discipline. And, and it kind of wants to be in charge sometimes. It oh, really yeah. does want to rule the rule the roost. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah, exactly. Have its way. I can see that. So it's uh, not necessarily, not to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but it's not necessarily like uh, like we need to, almost like arrow work or something with the Enneagram. Well, um, I think uh, I think this is, and I think arrow work gives people an ability to sort of understand that they can do stretches. They can stretch outside their comfort zone. They have other elements that are accessible to them, um, other parts of their personality that can help round them out and balance them. And I do think that all of these functions are similar. It's, it's not denying these parts. It's just understanding their place and how much, mm-hmm. how much is too much and how much is not enough. Um, I, that three-year-old part of who we are is the opposite of the driver. So we tend to neglect it. Uh, we tend to not integrate it and to push it away unless we've been conditioned either by our families or society to go there on a regular basis. And that three-year-old function, or it's technically called the inferior, is kind of like fluoride. If you don't have enough, it's, uh, it's undermining. But if you have too much, it can be toxic. So knowing what that function is and making sure that you have enough of it in your life, that it provides a ballast for you, um, that it provides, we call it the aspirational element of who we are, because we tend to have a lot of problems that come up. Other people would be using this function to solve problems, but we don't, right? We always want to use our driver. So we tend to ignore and neglect it. And if that's the case, then we have become too one-sided and we must integrate it. We must pull more elements of it into our, our identity and into our ego, who, who we see ourselves as. If we are in there too long, however, it takes us out of our driver 
And we are wired to gain energy while being in our driver dominant function. If you're low energy, dysthymic, if you just can't, if you have a sense of malaise and you're just not sure where, what it's coming from, oftentimes it's because a person is not spending enough time in that driver function. So if we get too much time in that three-year-old, it actually causes a form of dysthymia. And mm-hmm. knowing that helps people, and especially identifying all the qualities and characteristics of that three-year-old, a lot of people go, oh, I'm too much in that function. I need to, I need to be in my driver more often. But if a person's always in their driver and has none of that three-year-old represented, well, a very valuable member of the family is basically being neglected. Um, and, and it will make its presence known, right? You can ignore a toddler for so long and then all of a sudden they start screaming and this would be sort of lower state activities. These would be the things that we do when we're not in a good place. Um, there was a whole book written called, was that really me? Which is basically just (laughs) diagnosing all the ways in which we get trapped in that three-year-old function. And, uh, and it doesn't feel like us. It feels like something else, but it is us. It's just a neglected part of who we are. So again, understanding all of these, it's the dynamics between all of these parts of who we are and understanding their place, understanding how much is too much, how much is not enough, and choreographing a dance with all these parts of who we are. That is really the goal. Shelly, you asked a question earlier about trust and working with businesses. And what Antonio just kind of described is something we do with people. Like when we go and work with a business, for example, we'll, we'll diagnose each person on the team, help them understand their personality, how they're wired. And I think the lack of trust inside of teams is the fact that we all overvalue our own experience so much. Like we really believe that mm-hmm. other humans are seeing the world and making the decisions that, that we see and we decide upon, right? That they're doing it how we're doing it, right? And if they're not right. showing up that way, I don't know, can I trust that person? Do I have a lot of trust for this person? They're thinking so radically different than me. Maybe they're not even just making decisions differently than me. They're seeing reality different than me. Like I say the sky is blue. They say it's pink. I don't understand what's going on here. And I think that's where trust can break down. And so um, some of these growth ideas we're talking about, I think we can get people started on that. But then also understanding the way, because we're just talking about a couple personality types here. Antonio is basically showing the structure of how this architecturally looks. But each person is going to have a little bit of different flavoring here based on how they're wired. And so we do a lot of work on helping people understand, look, the language someone's using really kind of speaks to how their mind is thinking about things. Understanding when they say these words, this is what they mean by them. When you say these words, this is what you mean by them. Let's now understand, hey, this is how this person's wired. Can you see the language they're using? Oh, that's so that's so crazy. Yeah. So they're using what what we call in our uh, like maybe harmony language, for example, but I'm using authenticity language. So no, wonder gonna, no wonder we're going to have a conflict. They're, they're trying to get harmonizing needs met in the office environment, but I'm trying to make sure that everybody is individually represented here. So we're going to all, all of a sudden have a little bit of distrust and conflict as an example of two different people that are wired differently. So these are some practical ways this can work in, a, in, a, in an office environment or a consulting role when you're helping other people understand that too. And you know, one of the, I, I almost feel like in terms of speaking different languages um, of, on the spectrum of different polarities, I guess, is a strongly intuitive person with a strongly sensing person. I feel like it's just, uh, you don't. Different <laughs> languages. Yeah, you're yeah. speaking yeah. different languages. Actually, I think on your, your all's very first podcast, a- Antonia talked about um, the difference between the N and the S. I find that like the hardest thing to describe to people um, of the differences. Um, could y'all like briefly describe 
those differences and, those, and, wh- and why, yeah, NNS and why it's like speaking different languages. And it's, it's <laughs> also probably the most, it's the most talked about and also the least talked about part of mm-hmm. those four letters in everybody's personality, like intro- introversion, extroversion. It's pretty much entered the public consciousness. Po- most people at least right. think they know the difference, whether they do or not. Thinking and feeling, I think we can all like, well, that person's really thought heavy and in their head. This other person's got more emotional feeling base. And then judge or perceiver has been broken down to like, well, that person's messy. This person's organized. But when you get to the sensor versus intuitive, it gets, you're right. It does get a lot more fuzzy. Uh, There's more nuance here. And so in the, in the type world, it's talked about a lot, but I think outside the type world, it's not as mentioned as much Mm. because it's not as accessible as the other three aspects of this. Mm. Yeah. So sensing and intuition in Jung's terms were, um, they were called perceiving functions, or we call them information gathering, or basically how we perceive reality. And uh, approximately 75% of the world uses sensory functions. So that's Mm. basically your senses, like um, what you take in, uh, with your senses, the the being grounded and realistic, approaching reality as it's being presented to you. Uh, most of the world does that, right? When they're information gathering, they're they're looking for the most reliable and verifiable data possible, and um, and that's that's necessary. That's important. And there's a smaller percent of the population, about twenty five to thirty percent, um, that uses primarily as a way to gather information or perceive the world, an intuitive function. And intuition, we just we define it. Um, simply as advanced pattern recognition. Now, sometimes it feels like more than that. Sometimes for some people who are intuitive, it almost feels like ESP. But it's fundamentally (laughs) the ability to pattern recognize quickly what's happening beyond where our senses can grasp. We talk about it as sort of behind the curtain thinking. In order to understand what's going on behind a curtain, which you by definition can never actually know because it's behind a curtain, like you are not able to directly interact or engage with it. You have to use all of the information in front of the curtain to pattern recognize. And intuitives are naturally wired to be fascinated by what's going on behind the curtain. They, they're only interested in the sensory realm in so much as it gives them enough information to make those intuitive leaps or those patterns. And the challenge, uh, and, and by the way, both of these styles of, of information gathering ha- are incredibly valid, very important, serve incredibly important purposes in the world. There's no need to have a bias towards either of them when it comes to coolness or anything. Both of them are great. The challenge is that if you don't have language for this, a person who is looking for verifiable, reliable information and a person who is not interested in that kind of information at all is actually looking to make intuitive leaps and pattern recognize and figure out what's going on sort of behind the curtain. Those two people are going to come um, at odds with each other on a regular basis when they're trying to describe how reality works. What we've noticed too, and effectively what we end up determining between a sensor and an intuitive when it comes to like profiling and helping people find their type is the threshold for the styles of conversation each kind wants to have. Mm. A sensory person might find intuitive ideas interesting for a time, but they're going to run out of steam. It's going to be uninteresting at a certain point if they can't find a more practical application. Whereas an intuitive person uh, might be well-versed in sensory language, meaning that they might be able to talk a lot about what is, um, what is known and what's reliable and verifiable. But there's always going to be a hunger to go beyond. There's always going to be like a, um, a, a need for nourishment in pattern recognition. So it really is about um, interest, 
understanding that the other person even exists, which most people don't, just like Joel mentioned, introversion, extroversion is pretty much in the public consciousness. And if you say, I'm an introvert, I mean, the person might have an inaccurate depiction of what that is in their head. They might think that on Friday nights, you're reading a book with your cat, which is not what introversion is, by the way, but close enough, right? Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Close enough for government work. Uh, But sensing and intuition is not in the public consciousness at all. It's just that person has their head in the clouds or that person can't see beyond their own nose. Those are the accusations that we apply to each other. And so just having language around it, just knowing it exists, even if there's an inaccurate representation of what those two things mean, gives the other person space to be a bit of a weirdo, right? To be different than you. And uh, and I think uh, it helps us determine why we are not being nourished by our lives sometimes. If a sensor is around too many intuitives, that's an overwhelming mm-hmm. situation. If an intuitive is around too many sensors, it's a malnourished situation. Mm-hmm. And so just just knowing those pieces of information can help um, help a person create a more ergonomic life. What are the kinds of things I need to be doing to nourish my soul? I love that. I Ooh, so I have. Life. I know that's so good. I have immersed myself in Enneagram for the last few years. Um, I want to. I want to deep dive. Like this is such a fascinating primer for me to mm. really. I have so many more questions. Um, so much I want to learn. What? How do I? How does someone like dip their toe into this with you all? Like if they want to go deeper, I definitely do. Like where do I sign up? What do I do? Well, you, you, Shelly, you and Chad both should probably come to our profiler training uh, program. I mean, I'm not trying to pitch. I mean, I know we're on a we're on a show, but genuinely, <laughs> genuinely, if you do, do this, yeah. is fascinating. If, if you personally do this work with businesses and stuff, I think you'd really va- find value in that. But that's like a that's a pretty intense program. It's six months. That's not where I would start. But I think you guys, I would love to invite you guys to come and join that program. Yes. I think, I think a, an, easy, an easy place to start, we have a book, which is a really good primer, which helps, because this is pretty technical, right? We're talking about some stuff that takes a little bit of work to get to. So we wrote a book that we designed specifically for reflection points to ensure that people are understanding as they go along in the system to kind of walk through and break down this idea of these four letters mean that I've got cognitive functions. What's that? How does that work? And we use the car model in the book. And then we show each type how it shows up individually for those types. But we, the first few chapters really break down the system itself and how this, you know, how this plays out. So that's, that's really the, the first place I would start if somebody was brand new to wanting to understand cognitive functions a little bit better. I mean, we also have a podcast and a lot of articles and things and programs on our, on our website, Personality Hacker. But I think that book is a good starting reference. Mm. Yeah. And you have, yeah, you have well, courses as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. They do. I, I was going to give you a shout out on all of these things. Uh, but yes, I will just add to the book thing. Um, it's on order. I was going to get it on my Kindle. My Kindle is broken. But then <laughs> yesterday I, I checked it out and I found that I could get a hard copy. And for a 440 page book, I want a hard copy, especially when That's I looked good. at the, yeah. uh, the, the interior, the contents. You guys, that must have taken a lot of work. It's, it's, it looks like it would be a great reference guide. I actually highly recommend it. I can't believe that is a lot of book for like, I think it's 1350 right now <laughs> on Amazon. So, um, so everybody definitely check out this very valuable. It looks like a kind of a one of a kind in its space. You, you offer an assessment and then there's all kinds of tools for interpreting. 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, well, we're podcasters, we're orators, so writing a book was hard. The achievement of a lifetime. <laughs> but it required it required a lot of sitting down and being introverted, right? And we're like, yeah. how come this can't be as easy as a podcast? Because obviously, we show up to podcasts ready to talk, right? Um, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I've been writing a book for I think what 10, fifteen years, maybe now. So. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, this is the year, honey. This okay. is the That's year. What we say. <laughs> That's no, funny. this has been great. Um, I what take like what last kind of um, inspiring word would you leave with our audience about just self development work? How they can apply this? Um, anything? Any last words you want to say? Well, I think when it comes to this space. Uh, there's a lot of personal growth recommendations out there, and sometimes they directly contradict each other, right? Like there's um, there's the stuff that talks about ways to perpetually create happiness, and then there's other people that talk about the toxicity of perpetual happiness, and and it mm-hmm. feels like it's hard to it's hard to know what. You know, it's it's almost like dieting advice or nutrition advice. It's like it feels like as soon as you read one thing, you now go to another article that says the exact opposite. And that's because we're all very different, right? Like advice that works for one person may not work for another person. And the challenge is that we, because as Joel mentioned, we all overvalue our experience. You're going to get a lot of people recommending things that worked for them, that work for the people that they attract, which are probably all people who are very similar. And they start to feel very definitive about it. They start to go, okay, this is, this is how it works. This is what you should be doing. One great thing about these typology tools, especially if you look at them through the lens of personal growth, is you start, you, you understand what is healthy for you and what is not, right? It's kind of like getting blood work done or understanding the, the, the body type that you have. If you're a person who's really invested in a personal growth, particularly, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're applying it to, whether you're applying it to relationships or career or just your own self-satisfaction, it's really nice to be able to have a good diagnostic about what works for you. Like the best diagnostic creates the best prescriptions. Uh, Einstein said if he has an hour to solve a problem, he spends 55 minutes defining it. And That's right. I love that quote. Yeah, I love that one too. And that's what these are. These are diagnostic tools. They help us define what our challenges are so that when we prescribe something, it's the right prescription, right? It, it works the first time because we know what to ignore. We know what isn't right for us and we know what is. So in the personal development space, to me, starting out with these diagnostic tools is, I mean, it's the highest leverage thing you can do, right? So, so as you're sifting through mountains and mountains of personal growth advice and mountains of all of these different, um, probably very thoughtful tools that work for people, you'll know whether or not this thoughtful tool isn't for you or whether or not it is. So I don't know if that's inspiring, but to me, it's just, it's a it no-brainer. Yeah, it's a it no-brainer to start It's there. good and practical, yeah. and, and it, I, it reminds me a little bit of Gurdjieff, you know, saying, uh, don't take my word for this stuff, test it out for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I call it the person, it's our personalized syllabus is all of this. And it does start with accurately, like what, knowing our starting point. So I'm so grateful for you both being here and reflecting with us, teaching us. um, And I'm excited to work with you, hopefully here in the future, very soon. And very generous of y'all's time. I know you're tired. You've been on the road. So this has been a gift. Uh, And 
uh, I know our audience is just going to love it. So thank you so much for your generosity of, of time and, and energy here. Thank you, Chad and Shelley. We really appreciate being on the show. Yeah, it was a real honor. Thank you very much for having us. Any sophisticated system has the potential to overwhelm you. At the same time, what we're seeing in our clients and from our friends is that people, they really are craving depth. There are no trite answers here or answers that only apply to a few like-minded people and perhaps for only a short period of time. What we've taken away from our conversation with Joel and Antonia, a personality hacker today, there's three things that we're still thinking about. One, number one, the Myers-Briggs, it's a fantastic diagnostic tool for understanding yourself better, period. Number two is there's depth to it that comes, you all will love this, comes from my personal favorite and most important singular figure in the world of psychology, Mr. Carl Jung. This matters because there is an enduring credibility and legacy behind how the system is organized. And finally, number three, the Myers-Briggs is a tool, just like the Enneagram, it helps you loosen the grip of your personality. And for the Myers-Briggs, it helps you get out of your cognitive box. It also reveals the multitude of ways people perceive the world and their place in it. We are all so unique, and our work to grow beyond our fixated patterns, well, it's equally unique. Myers-Briggs is another powerful tool that can help you create your own personalized syllabus for growing as a leader and human. And as Jack Kornfield says, every facet, every department of your mind is to be programmed by you. And unless you assume your rightful responsibility and begin to program your own mind, the world will program it for you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's show. We aim to bring you valuable and practical insights and applications each and every episode. I hope you learned something today. I know I sure did. We'll see you next time on the Big Self Podcast.